Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, my fellow believers, and welcome into episode number 33 of Combat Bets with Jason Barron on the Believe Network. We've got a pretty good show lined up for you today. I'll be starting in the 140-pound division, talking about Jose Ramirez against Jose Pedraza, and of course, the big fight that just happened between Josh Taylor and Jack Catterall. But before I get into any more of those fights, I wanted to address the ongoing war in Ukraine because of the invasion of Russia, and I wanted to talk about it from a boxing perspective and the tenacity of the human spirit that these people are showing in defending their homeland and also looking at the hardship of those trying to leave the Ukraine, whether they are native Ukrainians or immigrants. It's really sad to see just lines of people trying to get out between the border of Ukraine and Poland. And then looking at these boxers at the top of the sport in a guy like Vasily Lomachenko and Oleksandr Usyk deciding to go back to defend their homeland, I think it shows the type of character they have and the type of will and love that they have for their country, that they're willing to defend it and risk their careers, earning millions of dollars in the boxing ring. In that same spirit, I wanted to talk about Victor Postal, who I've noticed isn't getting as much media attention as both Lomachenko and Usyk, but Postal, he just had a fight this past Saturday in Las Vegas against Gary Antoine Russell, the younger brother of the great Gary Russell Jr., who actually recently lost. I'll be talking about that fight a bit later on. But I wanted to talk about Victor Postal, who had to block out that the war was going on in his homeland. His wife and his two twins were still there in Ukraine, and he still had to focus on fighting a very good and up-and-coming fighter in Gary Antoine Russell. I thought that Postal, he showed great tenacity in there, great focus, Really put it on Russell for a few of those rounds, but I thought the overall pressure of the smaller Russell was what ended up getting him the win here. And in Postal, I think it's a story that you can tell to anyone about having a job to do no matter the circumstances. And as soon as that fight was over, he said he was going to go back to Ukraine and be with his family to protect them. So hoping for nothing but safety for his family and all those Ukrainians facing unseen hardships at this moment. And hopefully the war will end soon and we can get back to peace. It seems trivial now to talk about certain men in a boxing ring or in an octagon fighting each other to, you know, provide for their families and for their their careers when they're innocent Ukrainians defending their homeland in the wake of this Russian attack and hopefully we can have peace soon and getting back to Victor Postol the fact that he was able to go through that fight do as well as he did against an up-and-coming fighter in Gary Antoine Russell showed me the type of fighting spirit that he had because no matter how he did in in that fight in the boxing ring there was a much bigger fight going on back home And I'm praying for his safety and for all those Ukrainians facing those hardships, as well as anyone facing danger in this world, that the only fights that occur will be in the ring and not outside of it. Now a word from our sponsor, Bet Online. Football might be over this season, but basketball is in full steam for both pro and college hoops. 
from all the latest odds, totals, player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land. Bet Online is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. Head over to the website or use your mobile devices to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BLEAVE to get started. And it's not just basketball. Bet Online is your source for hockey, boxing, and UFC odds. Right to the Olympic coverage is the best in the business. From sports right down to your favorite Vegas casino games, Bet Online is your number one online wagering destination. Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports and play your favorite games. Bet Online, where the game starts. I'll start out with a recap of a boxing card from February 26 from Las Vegas on Showtime. In the third fight on the card, it was a world title fight between the longtime Filipino champion Erwin Ancos and the betting favorite against the underdog Fernando Martinez, an Argentine fighter, who in this fight realized the lifelong dream and became a world champion, winning the IBF Super Flyweight title off his opponent, Herwin Ancas. I thought that Fernando Martinez was more brutal in there and more vicious with his attacks and much more accurate and also very active in there. Herwin Ancas usually wins because he's an all-action fighter that's coming forward throwing a lot of punches, but I thought Fernando Martinez beat him at his own game coming forward throwing punches and bunches and really overwhelming Erwin Ancas with a lot of straight right hands overhand rights throughout the fight and Ancaz give him a lot of credit because he showed the heart of a champion in finishing the fight after taking a lot of punishment and he definitely landed his own punches on Martinez but I thought that Martinez was doing the more consistent work throughout the fight and that's why rightfully he won by unanimous decision. This fight has to go down as one of the fights of the year when you look at the action that was going on in the ring Ancas, he threw 816 total punches. His opponent, Martinez, threw 1,046 punches. Amazing. In a 12-round fight, Martinez landed 421 power punches, whereas Ancas only landed 170. So that's really where the fight was lost for Ancas, and he lost his IBF title. He wasn't active enough in there, and I thought Martinez, he really showed the heart of a champion in there coming forward willing to take a punch to land his own combinations, throwing, you know, one, two, three, four left hooks in a row. I saw that highlight during the fight where he just kept coming and coming, and if the punch landed, he would throw it again and again, and I think that's what you got to do to beat a great champion like Ancas. You've got to come forward and overwhelm him, and he was able to do that because if you don't do that and you fight on the back foot, that's exactly what Ancas is looking for. He's great at closing the distance and making it a firefight where the other opponent is generally overwhelmed. In this fight, surprisingly, the tables were turned, and Fernando Martinez, who is only 30 years old, he's still mourning the loss of his father, who predicted that one day his son would become a world champion, and congratulations to him for finally realizing that goal. That super flyweight division is really loaded with talent, with now two new world champions, the other, of course, being Jesse Bam Bam Rodriguez, who got it done on February 5th, 2022, against his opponent, the very game Carlos Quadras. But with this win, Jesse Rodriguez is now the youngest world champion in boxing at only 22 years old. An amazing 
uh, accomplishment for him so early on in his career. And he says he's going to stay at this weight division at 115 pounds, super flyweight, and see if he can make some big fights against the other world champions like Juan Francisco Estrada and, of course, the recently crowned Fernando Martinez and Kazuto Ioka, a Japanese boxer. So we'll see where this division goes from here, but definitely a lot of exciting fights to look forward to. And congratulations to both Fernando Martinez and Jesse Rodriguez for becoming new world champions. Rodriguez in his fight against Quadras landed 258 total punches. Quadras only landed 172. Rodriguez was hitting with a 38% connect rate. Quadras only an 18%. So this showed me that Rodriguez was not only great going forward, but also on the defensive end, because we know that Cuadras is a great come-forward fighter that can land a lot of punches. We've seen that in his past fights, but against Rodriguez, I didn't think he was ever able to get going and get into a good offensive rhythm, and that's because of the tactics that Rodriguez was using here against the older fighter in Cuadras, kind of schooling him and fighting great both offensively and defensively in a great world title fight, and now we'll see if he can get a big fight against perhaps Juan Francisco Estrada, which I think would be another super fight that perhaps the young Rodriguez could come out on top once again. I briefly touched on this fight before between Gary Antoine Russell and Victor Postol, and it was a very competitive fight. I thought the ref definitely shouldn't be stopping the fight in the 10th round. This fight definitely should have gone to a decision, a bad stoppage by him, as Gary Antoine Russell was coming forward and landing some good punches, but Postol was still defending himself. And throughout the fight, I thought that Gary Antoine Russell probably won about seven, six to seven of the rounds, and Postol won three to four of them. It was a pretty competitive fight, and I think in the 140-pound division that any up-and-coming fighter that's looking to make some noise in that division, he kind of has to go through Victor Postol to see if he's the real deal. You look at Postol's record, he's 31-4 with 12 wins by knockout and 19 by decision. He has three decision losses and one loss by knockout. That coming, of course, most recently to Gary Antoine Russell. His other losses have come to a former world champion, Jose Ramirez, another unified world champion currently in Josh Taylor, and another loss against the great Terrence Crawford. However, he does have big wins over the likes of Lucas Matisse, Hank Lundy, and Mohamed Mimoway most recently. This shows me that Postol, he's not quite at world champion level, but if you are a world champion or looking to fight at that level, you've got to go through him to see if you can really get it done. And that just shows me with losses to only the cream of the crop in Gary Antoine Russell, Jose Ramirez, Josh Taylor, and Terrence Crawford. Now, moving on from that fight, let's talk a little bit more about the 140-pound division. And of course, the big fight between Josh Taylor and Jack Catterall that happened this past Saturday in Glasgow, Scotland. Now, if this fight was anywhere else, I think Jack Catterall walks away as the undisputed 140-pound belt holder in the world. Unfortunately, this fight was in Glasgow, Scotland. Actually, quite fortunately for Josh Taylor, who I thought lost on the scorecards. He didn't come with enough effort or energy to get the job done. I thought Catterall did a beautiful job of boxing and making it very awkward for Josh Taylor to really get any of his punches off. 
when this was boxed at more of a distance, I thought Catterall was landing good one-twos on Taylor, often catching Josh Taylor in between punches, really timing him very well, fighting the type of fight that he needed to execute in order to become a unified, undisputed world champion. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to do so, and now Josh Taylor is is left with a lot more questions than answers to answer about himself and also the future of his career, whether it be in the 140-pound division or the 147-pound division. We'll see if he moves up to welterweight or stays at 140. If I'm him, I still want to see him at 140 and see him continue to defend his belts before moving up to 147. While it was a bad night for Josh Taylor, it was a great night for Jack Catterall because he landed his punches with great accuracy, much more accurate than Josh Taylor. He even put him down, I think, in the fifth round with two straight downward lefts that uh, put Taylor actually to the floor. And then we've also unfortunately got to talk about the referee because he took a point away from Jack Catterall when he pushed Taylor's head down when they were in close in the clinch. And then he took a point away from Josh Taylor for punching Catterall after the bell. A very light tap. It wasn't a a real punch. But either way, I don't think a point should have been taken from either fighter. But I guess justice is done because when you take a point from one guy, you've got to even it out and take a point from the other guy. So fortunately, his point deductions did not end up influencing the scoring in a very close competitive fight that I thought Jack Catterall deserved to walk away with the victory. Unfortunately, it was a split decision win for Josh Taylor. The eye test said that Jack Catterall won the fight. Now let's look at the numbers to even further illustrate why he deserved this win. Catterall threw 525 punches and he landed 120 of them. Josh Taylor, on the other hand, he only threw 306 and only landed 73 punches in a 12-round fight. This shows me that Catterall was fighting a great defensive game plan. When the fight was on the outside, he was hitting him with the one-twos and largely outboxing him. When Josh Taylor was coming forward, he would clinch and not let him get any punches off by hugging. It wasn't the most fan-friendly fight, but I thought it was a brilliant use of tactics by the oncoming challenger in Jack Catterall. Moving on to more punch stats here, Catterall threw about twice as many jabs as Josh Taylor to keep him on the outside, and then power punches landed. Catterall threw 267, landing 81. Josh Taylor threw 179, landing only 57. So this shows me that Catterall landed more punches was more effective and landed the cleaner punches, even put Taylor down in one of the rounds. While Taylor was coming forward, putting some aggression on Jack Catterall. However, I did not think that aggression was all that effective. And as I said, Catterall landed the more effective punches, which is why he deserved to be an undisputed world champion. Josh Taylor now has to look inwardly at himself and figure out why he didn't come out with more force and more accurate punching in his home country of Scotland, fighting as the only undisputed Scotsman currently in the sport, why he didn't put the pressure on Catterall and force him out of there. For Catterall, you've got to say that he's a great boxer and had a great night, 
but we're more going to be focused on Josh Taylor and what he didn't do versus what the great things that Jack Kyderall did do and was able to execute. Overall, it was kind of a weird, awkward fight and give credit to Catterall for making it that. And we'll see if Taylor stays at 140 or goes up to 147. And for Catterall, there's definitely a lot of interesting fights to be made for him at 140. And I hope he gets another world title opportunity soon because he took advantage of this opportunity. Unfortunately, he was just robbed on the judges' scorecards. Let's move on to another fight. Coming up in a few hours on March 4th from Fresno, California on ESPN+. Plus. In the main event, we've got Jose Ramirez taking on Jose Pedraza, 12 rounds in the junior welterweight division. And of course, we know Jose Ramirez is coming off his big loss to Josh Taylor, who I just got finished talking about in his fight against Jack Catterall. So we'll see how Jose Ramirez comes back from his first career loss and if he's ready to, you know, show that great will that he has as a fighter against the very skilled Jose Pedraza. The odds here, Jose Ramirez, a big favorite at minus 575. Pedraza, the underdog at plus 425. I like Ramirez here to get the win. I'll say by unanimous decision. I think Pedraza will be very hard to get out of there and Ramirez is going to have to box really well to win this fight because while Ramirez may have more of that will, that heart, and determination deep inside of him, I think that Pedraza may have more boxing skill, be able to use his jab more effectively to keep Ramirez on the outside because we know Ramirez loves to come forward and be a real destroyer in there, land a lot of body punches and weaken his opponent round after round. He's not really a one-punch knockout artist, but he is a very mean fighter in there. Interestingly enough, his trainer, Robert Garcia, wants him to get meaner in there, more nasty, and really look to hurt his opponent. So we'll look if those words will be taken to heart against a very quality opponent in Jose Pedraza. I'm picking Ramirez here by unanimous decision. So tune in on ESPN Plus today to see great fights like Jose Ramirez versus Jose Pedraza. Also on the card, Joet Gonzalez versus Gio Santissima and the young Gabriel Flores Jr. versus Abraham Montoya. So some pretty good fights there to look forward to. But the fight that I'm most looking forward to on the boxing calendar as happening tomorrow, March 5th on Saturday from San Diego, California on DAZN. And in the main event, we've got Roman Gonzalez versus Julio Cesar Martinez, 12 rounds in the junior bantamweight division. This fight is bound to have fireworks and be all action. It is a fight that you do not want to miss. It has a chance to be the fight of the year because these guys love to come forward and throw a lot of punches, especially Roman Gonzalez, who is great at coming forward, fighting in a phone booth type of fight, and landing a lot of uppercuts, a lot of punches to the body, and really just making it a great firefight. His opponent, Julio Cesar Martinez, he's more known for throwing punches from weird angles and having one-punch knockout power. So it's going to be an interesting matchup between the onslaught of punches coming from Roman Gonzalez Chocolatito against the, you know, more skilled and younger fighter in Julio Cesar Martinez, who will be looking to land that one-punch knockout. But may, make no mistake about it, 
Both these guys throw a lot of punches, and I cannot wait to watch this fight. The odds for this fight are pretty close. Roman Gonzalez is a slight favorite at minus 135. Julio Cesar Martinez is the underdog at plus 115. So this is really a pick and fight. Depends what style you like more here. I think this fight could go either way. But I think that the experience that Roman Gonzalez has and the more consistent approach to his offensive attack will end up paying dividends for him during this fight. I don't see it going the distance. I think Gonzalez can get a late stoppage, a 10th round stoppage I'll say here. However, I wouldn't be surprised if Martinez manages to knock out Chocolatito. Like I said, this is going to be a very competitive and exciting fight, and I'm expecting it to potentially be the fight of the year. We know Julio Cesar Martinez likes to throw a lot of looping punches, but that also can leave him open to counters and getting hit with straight right hands. So we'll see if Gonzalez is able to time him throughout the fight. If not, Martinez could definitely land that one punch that puts Gonzalez down. So I'm looking forward to an all-action brawl between two guys that love to come forward and really give the fans a great fight. We saw this when Gonzalez fought against Juan Francisco Estrada, so this fight should be no different. Julio Cesar Martinez is 27 years old, and his professional record is 18 wins, 1 loss, and 2 no contest, with 14 wins by knockout and 4 by decision. However, he has never fought a fighter at the caliber of Roman Gonzalez, so it will be interesting how he does when he moves up in weight and in the skill level of his opponent and how he deals with those challenges. Roman Gonzalez is an older fighter. He's 34 years old. He's been through a, a lot of wars in the boxing ring. His record is 50-3. and three. His losses have come to Julio, Francisco Estrada, and twice to Sorvisite Sorungvisai. So he only lo- loses to the cream of the crop, and usually he's able to win his fights by overwhelming his opponent, having 41 wins by knockout and only 9 by decision. I expect that the forward pressure of Roman Gonzalez will be enough to eventually overcome the looping punches and the wild attacks of Julio Cesar Martinez. That's why I like Gonzalez by a late 10th round stoppage in an amazing fight. Now word from our sponsor NordVPN. What's more important than peace of mind? Nothing. And that's what NordVPN is here for. To give you peace of mind while you are online. And with all the threats that you face today on the internet, it is more important than ever to be sure that you have the best VPN you can get. NordVPN is the world's best VPN experience, offering the fastest connectivity, most servers, and next-gen encryption to make sure that everything you do online stays secure. Plus, you can use NordVPN on all your computers and devices, no matter the operating system. With NordVPN's unlimited bandwidth, you never have to worry about a slow connection either, and plans start at under $4 per month. So grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash believe, or use the code believe, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get up to 70% off your NordVPN plan, plus one additional month for free. It's also risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Now word from Athletic Greens. Tons of people take multivitamins, but it's important to choose one that is top quality. 
With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to start your day right. Their special blend of ingredients supports gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, energy, recovery, focus, and aging. It's also lifestyle-friendly and fits a wide range of diets. There's only one gram of sugar and no chemicals or artificial anything. Reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash believe. That's B-L-E-A-V. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash believe. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Athletic Greens, take ownership of your health. Now let's get back into some boxing recaps. I'll start with a big welterweight clash between Cal Brook and Amir Khan. This fight was back on February 19th from the AO Arena in Manchester, England, and Cal Brook ended up winning by a six-round technical knockout over his fierce rival and longtime British opponent, in Amir Khan. It was a matchup between two Brits in Cal Brook and Amir Khan, who is also of Pakistani descent. But they both represented Britain in the Olympics, and now they were finally getting a chance to go against each other. After years of talking about this fight, we got, finally got to see it play out, and Cal Brook was the more effective fighter in there, the more powerful guy, and landed the cleaner punches. And we've all known for a long time that Amir Khan has a bit of a glass chin, and he's capable of getting knocked out. Cal Brook took great advantage of that, had a great game plan of going in there, timing Amir Khan really well. Khan may have the faster hands, but he definitely didn't have the better punches in there. Cal Brook was able to land good one-twos on him, stun him early on in the fight. You could see his legs get wobbly, and you knew it was just the beginning of the end for Amir Khan, and that's indeed what happened when Calbrook was able to get the finish in the sixth round. This was a very long layoff for Amir Khan, who came into this fight having not fought since July 12th of 2019, so a little less than three years out of the ring, and previous to that he got knocked out by Terence Crawford, also in the sixth round. So looking at uh, Amir Khan's record, he has 34 wins and 6 losses. Kelbrook, of course, is also coming off a knockout loss to Terrence Crawford in the 4th round back on November 14th of 2020. So not quite 2 years out of the ring there for Kelbrook, but pretty close to it. And he looked really good against Amir Khan, and now he's talking about possibly fighting Conor Ben. I could also see Kel Brook against Josh Taylor being a very good fight. If Josh Taylor does indeed move up to 147 pounds, I think Kel Brook is not quite, you know, at the top level of those welterweights, but he's just below it. Not quite a world-class, world champion level, but is going to beat most other guys in the division, and he showed that in this night against 
Amir Khan in, in what was a huge night for British boxing, and it felt like a big event. The fight somewhat lived up to it. If it was more competitive, I think it would have been a better fight. But overall, a very fun event, and Calbrook once again showed his quality. And then a week later, he was actually ringside for the Josh Taylor versus Jack, Jack Catterall fight, perhaps scouting a future opponent in J Josh Taylor. And in that fight, he did see a lot of weaknesses. Perhaps he could expose if they do end up fighting down the line in the welterweight division. Looking at the punch stats for this fight, Amir Khan threw 151 punches, only landed 34. Cal Brook, he threw 224 punches, but was much more accurate, landing 79 of them in only a six-round fight. His style, the way he was able to plod forward and close the distance on Amir Khan, reminded me a lot of how Gennady Golovkin often fights. How he's coming forward, always stalking his prey, looking to land power punches. And that's exa exactly what Cal Brook did. He was coming forward, not really too worried about the hand speed of Amir Khan because he knew he had a weak chin and if he could just get to it, he'd get the knockout. And that's what happened in a big fight. Moving on to another fight on February 26th from Las Vegas on Showtime in the main event. We had Chris Colbert versus Hector Luis Garcia, 12 rounds in the WBA Junior Lightweight Eliminator. And a big hype train, one of the best young prospects in boxing, got absolutely humbled in there by the Dominican fighter and Hector Garcia. Unknown going into this fight, Garcia was a big underdog, I think plus 600, maybe plus 700. And he pulled off the big upset win over Chris Colbert, outboxing him, even putting him down in one of the middle rounds, overall landing the more effective punches, and then in the later half of the fight, when you saw Colbert was defeated, his main goal was not really to fight back. It was just to survive in there. I believe in the last three rounds, he danced outside. So um, Garcia couldn't close the distance and continue to land the more effective punches. Colbert was just happy to you know, stay on the outside and not get knocked out. This shows me he still has a lot of work to do. When he is put under pressure and the other guy can match his amazing hand speed, then we'll see how Colbert is able to react to these difficulties inside the ring. And on this night, Hector Garcia really just brought the fight to him, overwhelmed him. And it was a really great night, the night of his life for Hector Garcia. And for Chris Colbert, he's got to go back to the drawing board, see what he did wrong. He's still a young fighter, only 25 years old, with a lot of potential left in him. And if he can correct these mistakes and come out with a better uh, showing of himself in his next fight, then he can get his career back on track. But for Hector Garcia, with this win, it looks like he'll be fighting for a world championship. So great props to him, and we'll see where both of these fighters go from here. Chris Colbert still has the potential to be a superstar in this sport if he can come back from this loss and learn from it. And for Hector Garcia, a lot of props to him for coming in, not listening to any of the pundits saying that he was going to likely lose this fight by knockout. He brought the fight to the younger Chris Colbert and showed what a veteran fighter can do when he's given the big opportunity. And this was a short notice fight. Originally, Chris Colbert was scheduled to fight someone else. They had to pull out. Garcia stepped in and pulled off one of the most shocking upsets of the year. This amazing performance by Hector Garcia was punctuated with a straight left hand in the seventh round that put Chris Colbert down. 
and really cemented this big decision win for him. He won easily on the scorecards, 118-109 and 118-109 and 119-108 on all three judges' scorecards. So really not even giving Colbert a round during the whole fight. Colbert was expected to come into this fight and win. Garcia had other plans, and he said previously that he had power in both hands, and that was going to be the key to winning this fight. Early on, he could see that Colbert, even though he was landing some punches, couldn't really hurt him, so that invited Garcia to just march forward, land a lot of straight right hands, and overwhelm him with his activity and his more accurate punching. Garcia, being the more accurate and effective puncher, puncher in there, landed 211 punches, compared to only 116 for Colbert, so this shows me he was more accurate, more willing to throw more punches and bunches to land the ones he needed to, and for Colbert, he could never find his offensive rhythm and keep his opponent on the back foot, and that's what he's been able to do so well throughout his career, is utilize his amazing hand speed to make his opponent fight off the back foot so he can be more offensive. In this fight, Garcia really brought the fight to him and did not allow Colbert to gain any offensive rhythm or really any flow throughout the fight. The very exciting Jaime Munguia was also in action back on February 19th, winning in Mexico, knocking out his opponent Demetrius Ballard with a third round knockout, really just overwhelming him with this offensive onslaught, coming forward, landing a lot of hooks, and Ballard just could not handle the pressure, and Munguia once again shows why he's such a promising young fighter, only 25 years old, and still on the up and up, looking for those big fights against the likes of Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin. We'll see who he gets matched up with next, but he's one of the most promising young fighters in the sport, with 39 wins, 31 by knockout, and 8 by decision, coming off a pretty tough a unanimous decision win over Gabriel Rosado. He gets back on the right track with a big knockout win over Demetrius Ballard in his home country of Mexico. A great win for him, and I can't wait to see Munguia fight again. Speaking of Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin, they both have their next fights lined up. Canelo Alvarez will be fighting Dmitry Bivol sometime in May. And then, of course, Gennady Golovkin will be fighting in April, I believe, against Ryoto Murata. A fight that was originally scheduled for a few months ago, but got postponed due to COVID restrictions. Now, hopefully, we'll be seeing both Golovkin and Canelo fight in the near future. If both of those fighters win those fights, then they're scheduled to fight again for a third time. Triple G versus Canelo doesn't get much better than that, and I expect both Gennady Golovkin and Canelo Alvarez to get the job done. Now I'm going to start with talking about Alvarez against Bivol, just briefly previewing it before we get you know closer and closer to the fight. I'll go more in depth with that fight, but I think Bivol is the best boxer that Alvarez has faced in his career since he fought Floyd Mayweather all those years ago when Canelo Alvarez was a much younger and not experienced as a fighter as he is now. Whereas um, Dimitri Bivol, he's kind of been doing the same thing to his opponents, keeping them at bay with his long jab, and then you know he's got that power right hand, so his opponents are very wary and staying on the outside. Against uh, a fighter like Canelo Alvarez, Alvarez likes to get on the inside and land hooks to the body. That's how he takes advantage of his taller opponents. It's going to be a very good fight. And moving on to Murata versus Golovkin. Murata is a very uh, accomplished Japanese champion moving up 
Uh, in skill level of opponent when he takes on Golovkin, it should be a close competitive fight. I could see Golovkin losing. Hopefully he gets the job done here against Murata. In about a month from now on April 9th, from the Saitama Super Arena in Saitama City, Japan, we're expected to see Gennady Golovkin taking on Ryoto Murata in Japan for the when he'll be defending the IBF and IBO middleweight titles and for the WBA super middleweight title. So this is a big fight in the 160-pound division. I expect Golovkin to come in with a lot of energy in there, a lot of force, and looking to take um, you know, a lot of glory from Ryoto Murata. In Japan, I expect him to win, I'll say, by unanimous decision. Hopefully, if he can get through Murata, we'll see that super fight that all boxing fans have been waiting for between Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Golovkin, one of the all-time great, you know, two-fight bouts that we got to see against these two great middleweights, and we're hoping for a third fight. Golovkin is already 39 years old. By the time he fights Canelo Alvarez, he'll likely be 40 years old. So that's a great story there. We don't know how many more years Golovkin has left fighting, so let's appreciate every fight while we still have it. Moving on to another boxing preview on January 22nd from Atlantic City, New Jersey on Showtime. In the main event, we had Gary Russell Jr. versus Mark Magsayo for Russell's WBC featherweight title. Russell ended up losing this fight quite surprisingly against the Filipino now world champion Mark Magsayo. Early on in the fight, I think in maybe the fourth round, Russell Jr. hurt. I think it was his right hand, so he could really only show throw straight lefts and left hooks throughout the fight. And even boxing really with just one hand, he did a great job of surviving and landing some pretty good punches in there against Mark Magsayo. Ultimately, uh, this physical injury was just too much for Gary Russell to overcome, and Magsayo quite surprisingly became a world champion. This was a close fight won by majority decision from Magsayo. The judges' scorecards were 114-114, the other two 115-113 in favor of Magsayo. Throughout the fight, Magsayo was able to land the more effective body punches, and even when Russell wasn't compromised, it was still a very competitive fight, and Magsayo was showing great durability in there, able to get on the inside and land a lot of body punches. And I said, I believe midway through the third or fourth round, Russell's right arm started hurting, and he was really relegated to fighting with mostly just his left hand. And even then, it was still a competitive fight that Magsayo barely won on the scorecards. Looking at the total punches landed, Magsayo landed 150 total punches. Russell only landed 69, so he was the more effective guy in there. And defensively, he was able to fight really well, staying out of the range of the smaller Russell, who has shorter arms, and used his boxing ability. And like I said, get a lot of good body punches in there to control most of the rounds. As the world champion going into that fight, Russell looks like he's going to be exercising his rematch clause, so we should see Magsayo and Russell fight once again. Moving on to a cruiserweight fight that happened on February 27th from the O2 Arena in London, England. Lawrence Acoli was able to retain his WBO cruiserweight title over Michael Seslock by unanimous decision over 12 rounds. Throughout the fight, you could see that Seslock was just trying to survive in there, not really trying to go for the knockout against Acoli because Akoli has that big right hand that he's knocked out so many op opponents with. 
His record is 18-0 with 14 wins by knockout and 4 by decision. This was a surprisingly a decision win over Michael Seslak. He wasn't able to get him out of there, but he did drop him, I believe, twice over the course of the fight, landing that big right hand that you know is going to really hurt any opponent that he lands it on. But he's got to do a better job of not smothering his punches and staying on the outside using his very long reach to his advantage. Oftentimes in this fight, Sisluk was able to tie up a Coley so he couldn't land more power punches, much like Jack Carroll was able to do against Josh Taylor. The difference in this fight being that Lawrence Acoli was able to land the more effective punches against Michael Sisluk, a Polish cruiserweight. Lawrence Acoli is expected to move up to heavyweight at some point in his career. He says he can't be making this weight for much longer. He stands at 6'5", with an 82.5-inch reach, and is 29 years old. So really, at any distance, it's going to be hard for his opponent to reach him because of that long reach and also his one-punch knockout power. While he didn't land that knockout in this fight, he still looked like the more quality fighter in there. And Seslock, he was able to do some good inside punching, but a majority of this fight was either fought on the outside or inside when they were clinching and not really getting any punches off against each other. A big unification bout that is being discussed in that cruiserweight division would be the Latvian fighter Marius Bredas taking on the British cruiserweight in Lawrence Acoli. I think that is a great fight between Bredas and Acoli, and it has the potential to be a huge cruiserweight fight down the line. Bredis has another opponent already lined up May 11th against Jay Optai, but if he can get past that fight without too much trouble, then hopefully a Coley against Bredis can be made and we can get a, a great unification bout in the cruiserweight division. For a Coley, this was a solid performance against Seslock, but definitely not an A-plus performance. He's still got some holes in his game to work on, and if he can use his long reach to his advantage, then I really don't see an opponent having too much success in there. Bradis, of course, is a great boxer, able to get on the inside and land a lot of power punches, and that's going to be a bad matchup for a Coley, so we'll see how that plays out if we do indeed get to see it down the line. Bradis was actually ringside for this fight, with Lawrence Acoli against Michael Sesluck wearing a Mario costume for some reason. And he came into the ring after the fight. They had, you know, a little talk back and forth. So it's likely that this fight will be happening sometime in the future. My last boxing recap happened on February 5th from the Michelob Ultra Arena in Paradise, Nevada. And that was a pay-per-view fight on Fox between Keith Thurman and Mario Barrios in the welterweight division. This was Keith Thurman's return fight after not having fought since July 20th of 2019 when he lost a split decision to Manny Pacquiao. Now going into this fight against Mario Barrios, I thought he looked really strong in there, really forceful, definitely landing the more powerful punches. Already in round three, you could see Barrios' nose was already busted up and bloody. By the end of the fight, it just got worse for Barrios. Thurman was able to land a lot more effective power punches and he's a really good boxer and when he's able to get on the front foot and control the action he's nearly unbeatable and that's what happened against Barrios. Barrios was never able to push Thurman back and stop the on forward pressure that he was putting on Barrios. As a result he easily won on the judges scorecards 
117 to 111, the other two 118 to 110. Thurman landed 181 total punches, Barrios only landed 105. Thurman landed 135 power punches, whereas Barrios only landed 82. Thurman was able to land 48% of his power punches, Barrios only landed 35% of his power punches. So when you're getting it done landing almost 50% of your power punches, you're really going to be putting a lot of pressure on your opponent. And that's indeed what Thurman was able to do here against Barrios in a fight that he needed to look really good in, and I thought he did, in order to set up those bigger fights against the likes of perhaps a Terrence Crawford or an Errol Spence Jr. or your Dennis Ugas. We'll see where their welterweight division goes from here, but it's definitely great to see a great welterweight like Keith Thurman come back into the sport after, of course, Sean Porter retired following the his loss to Terrence Crawford. Now we have Keith Thurman coming back and looking like a real player in that welterweight division, maybe even a future opponent for a world champion. We'll see how it all shakes out. To conclude this episode, I'm going to get into some MMA topics, preview some fights coming up, and also recap some past fights. So in that spirit, let's go ahead and start with UFC 270 in Ganu vs. and that was back on January 22nd from the Honda Center in Anaheim, California. And in the co-main event, we had a rematch, a flyweight title fight, the third time these two guys were going to fight against each other. And that's, of course, between Brandon Moreno, the former Mexican champion, and against Devinson Figueroa, his Brazilian rival. Figueroa ended up getting the decision here, unanimous decision, 48-47 on all three judges' scorecards in a very close and competitive fight. A great fight between two warriors. Figueroa, I thought, landed the more effective power punches. Brandon Moreno was more effective, landing a majority of his shots, but they just weren't as powerful, but I thought he did the more consistent work in there. Figueroa, on the other hand, was able to put Moreno down a few times and showed the real heart of a champion coming back from a tough, you know, loss to Moreno the last time out and showing the champion that he is. The main difference in this fight was that Figueroa landed three knockdowns on Moreno. Moreno landed zero against Figueroa, so was not able to put him down. And then also the ground control time. Figueroa was 2 of 11 on his takedown attempts with 2 minutes and 18 seconds of ground control time. Moreno only 1 of 2 on his takedown attempts for only 46 seconds of ground control time. So that little bit of advantage that Figueroa had on the mat combined with the ability to put him down on the feet was why he was able to get a very close decision win here and get his title back. Figueroa landed 95 total strikes. Moreno landed 106 total strikes in a very close striking battle. But as I said, Figueroa definitely landed the more telling blows on Moreno and that's why he ended up getting this big decision win. Moving on to the main event, a heavyweight title fight between the current champion Francis Ngannou and the interim former champion in Cyril Gan. And Ngannou ended up winning by unanimous decision 49-46 and 48-47, 48-47 on all three judges' scorecards. This was a very close fight, but surprisingly, this fight was won by the wrestling of Ngannou and not by his striking. 
We also have to keep in mind that Nganu came into this fight battling some knee injuries, so this clearly wasn't 100% Nganu. He was somewhat compromised, but he was still able to get the win. And a lot of people predicted that Gan would be able to take the title off Nganu because he had the more effective striking. And we also know that his stand-up defense is amazing. He really doesn't get hit that much because he's able to move in and out of range very effectively. And after the first round, it looked like Gan was going to cruise to a decision win over Nganu, outlanding him on the feet and being the more effective striker, and also eluding the forward pressure and offense that Nganu was trying to put on him with his own strikes. But then things changed once Nganu landed that first takedown, you could see the tenor of the fight suddenly flip and the momentum go into the favor of Nganu, who was able to take Gan down over the course of the fight again and again and really control him on the ground and showed a new layer in his fighting arsenal that he's not only this great knockout artist that we know Nganu to be, he's also a very capable grappler that can win in that fashion when needed against a very skilled striker in Gan, who is really able to put Nganu on the back foot and not allow him to gain any offensive striking momentum. So it was really about Nganu timing those takedowns well and controlling Gan on the ground, which is why he got this big decision win to retain his heavyweight title. Let's take a look at this fight stats here in a very close competitive fight. Gan landed 79 total strikes. And Ganu only landed 71, so pretty close numbers there. And then this is really where the fight was won and lost. And Ganu had 8 minutes and 29 seconds of ground control time and was 4 of 5 on his takedown attempts. Gan only had 2 minutes and 51 seconds of ground control time, only 1 of 3 on his takedown attempts. With the contract dispute going on with Francis and Ganu, we're not too sure if we'll see him back in the UFC. And he might even be pursuing a boxing fight against Tyson Fury. We'll see if that fight happens next year. So the future of Nganu really is up in the air. But this was a crucial win for him against a very worthy challenger in Cyril Gan, who had been through everyone, knocking out Derek Lewis in his most previous fight, heading into this fight against Nganu. Hopefully we see Nganu back in the UFC in not too long and defending his heavyweight title once again. Moving on to UFC 271, Adesanya vs. Whitaker 2, from the Toyota Center in Houston, Texas, back on February 12th. The third fight on the card featured a big middleweight fight between Jared Kanier and Derek Brunson. Kanier ended up winning by second round knockout with elbows. He landed some big right hands on Brunson that put him down and followed up with some vicious elbows on the ground to end the fight. And early on, it looked like Brunson was going to get a win here, nearly submitting him at the end of the first round after taking him down and landing some good ground and pound on Kanier. Give credit to Kanier for coming back in that second round, showing the superior stand-up ability when he stunned Brunson. And soon after that, he was able to get him down and land some elbows to end the fight. With this big win, it looks like Kanier could be taking on Adesanya next. Looking at the fight stats here, Kanier landed 61 total strikes, Brunson landed 48, and he had 2 minutes and 38 seconds of ground control time, was 3 of 13 on his takedown attempts. 
So his strategy was clear. Take down Kanier and make this a wrestling match instead of a stand-up battle. Kanier was able to impose his will and land some good power punches in the second round, which led to the end of the fight. And Brunson, early on in the fight in that first round, he had 2 minutes and 38 seconds of ground control time, largely controlling that first round. The momentum then switched to Kanier, and he was able to get a big knockout win at the end of the second round. In what was quite the fight, because at first he thought Brunson was going to get it done with the submission in the first round, and then all of a sudden you could see the tide changing as Kanier was able to land more and more punches and also withstand the takedown attempts by Brunson. Kanier is known for his knockout power, and he showed it once again against a very worthy challenger in Derek Brunson in a fight that really could have gone either way. On this night, Kanier was able to get his hand raised, and we'll see if he gets Adesanya next. Moving on to the co-main event, a heavyweight fight between Derek Lewis and Tai Tuivasa. Tuivasa, the Australian heavyweight, was able to get the biggest win of his young career with a second-round knockout over Derek Lewis, who has now recorded the most knockouts in UFC history, I believe. So for Tai Tuivasa to do this against the Black Beast and Derek Lewis as a slight betting underdog shows the potential that Tai Tuivasa has in this heavyweight division. This fight really could have gone either way with both fighters landing power punches that stunned you know, their opponent, but Tuivasa was able to fight through those early wobbles that Derek Lewis put him through and land a beautiful close-in elbow in the clinch that really stunned Derek Lewis, put him down, and that was the end of the fight. An amazing performance from Tuivasa here against one of the best heavyweights in the division, and it showed me that he's ready for, you know, more challenges and perhaps a title fight if he continues his winning ways. Tuivasa against maybe Stipe Miocic or Cyril Ghosn is a really big fight to making that heavyweight division, so we'll see, but he's no doubt vaulted himself to a top five heavyweight. And looking at the fight stats here, Tuivasa landed 35 total strikes, Derek Lewis landed 31, so a very close competitive fight in the striking battle, but it was about who could take more punishment and land their own more effective shots, and Tuivasa was able to take some really strong punches from Derek Lewis and come back and land his own nasty elbow that put Lewis down, and that was the end of the fight. This showed me that Tuivasa is an evolving striker, getting better and better. He's able to read his opponents really well. He's a quite a smart fighter in there in how he reads what his opponent is doing, how he's moving, and then he's able to counter off his opponent's mistakes. He did it once again against Derek Lewis. Lewis was 2 of 4 on his takedown attempts with a minute and 48 seconds of ground control time. Tuivasa had 2 minutes and 6 seconds of ground control time, so able to reverse the position there and get on top and really make this a competitive fight whether it was fought on the feet or on the ground. The heavyweight rankings are now as follows. Francis Ngannou the champion, Cyril Ghane number one contender, number two Stipe Miocic, and all the way at number three, Tai Tuivasa, number four Curtis Blades, and number five Derek Lewis. So a lot of interesting fights to make there in the heavyweight division. And hopefully, as I said earlier, Nganu gets this contract dispute resolved and we see him back in the octagon soon.
Moving on to the main event, a middleweight title fight between Israel Adesanya and Robert Whitaker. Adesanya won by unanimous decision 48-47 on two of the judges' scorecards and 49-46 on the third judges' scorecard. This was a very close and competitive fight. Robert Whitaker did very well in there, but did he do enough to really take the belt off the champion? I don't think he did. He didn't hurt him enough. He didn't control him enough on the ground, and Adesanya got the better of the striking exchanges for the most part. Whitaker really needed to wrestle with more effectiveness and keep this on the ground much more than he did. Adesanya, give him credit for getting up after getting taken down and getting back into his own striking rhythm of getting in and out of range and making it very hard for Whitaker to, you know, land any effective punches on Adesanya. There's not much doubt that these are the two best middleweights in the world. It's just that Adesanya is a little bit better than Whitaker. And Whitaker did a lot better than when they first fought back in 2019 when Whitaker lost by second round knockout to Adesanya. And that's when he actually lost his title. Since then, Adesanya has went on to beat Yoel Romero, Paulo Costa by knockout, a loss to Jan Blaukowicz by unanimous decision in his move up to light heavyweight, and then two unanimous decision wins over Marvin Vittori and now Robert Whitaker. Give credit to Whitaker for coming back like a champion after his knockout loss to Israel Adesanya. Since then, he went on to get three unanimous decision wins over Darren Till, Jared Kanier, Calvin Gastelum, now coming off a unanimous decision loss to the current champion Israel Adesanya. Jared Kanier, the fighter that just beat Derek Brunson, is now being talked about as the next opponent for Israel Adesanya. Well, Robert Whitaker already beat Kanier, so that just further proves to me that Whitaker and Adesanya are quite clearly the two best middleweights in the world, not named Gegard Mousasi. I'll talk about Mousasi's most recent performance in a few moments, but getting back to the fight stats for Adesanya and Whitaker, Adesanya landed 98 total strikes, when Whitaker landed 74 total strikes, he was 4 of 10 on his takedown attempts with 3 minutes and 40 seconds of ground control time. Adesanya did not have any ground control time. So if he could have controlled the fight more on the ground, he could have had a better chance. But getting outlanded by almost 25 strikes and also not landing the more effective strikes is not quite going to get it done for Whitaker, who is very competitive in this fight but not do quite enough to take the belt off Adesanya. I expect before these two fighters' careers are over that they will meet in the octagon for at least a third time because I still think they're the two best middleweights in the world, not named Gegard Mousasi. Speaking of Mousasi, he just defended his middleweight title at Bellator 275 Musasi vs. Vanderford on February 25th from 3 Arena in Dublin, Ireland. And Musasi came out, got an easy knockout, first round knockout over Austin Vanderford, the husband of Paige Van Sant. Musasi showed great timing there, landing a beautiful overhand right, right on the top of the head that really was the beginning of the end for Austin Vanderford, who couldn't take the power of Musasi. He went down, Musasi finished him with some ground and pound. Another amazing performance for Musasi, who continues to string together win after win, and 
an amazing fight would be Musashi against Adesanya. I don't think it'll ever happen because Musashi is the champion in Bellator and Adesanya is, of course, the champion in the UFC. But that would be a super fight to make in that middleweight division. Musashi last fought in the UFC in 2017. Since moving to Bellator, he's only lost one fight to Rafael Lovato Jr. by a majority decision. He also has wins over Austin Vanderford, John Slater, Douglas Lima, Leota Machida, Rory McDonald, Rafael Carvalho, Chris Weidman, Uriah Hall in the UFC before moving on to Bellator. So this guy has clearly had one of the best careers in all of MMA, a true living legend with a record of 49 wins, 7 losses, and 2 draws. And I am just going to continue to dream about the fight between Adesanya and Musasi because I know we will likely never see it. But if I was picking this theoretical fight, I would actually pick Musasi to get the win over Adesanya much in the same fashion as John Blockwitz beat Adesanya when they fought. Both Adesanya and Musasi will continue to rule the middleweight division and I can't wait to see their next fights. Moving on to another fight recap on February 26th from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. In the main event, we had a catchweight fight in the lightweight division between Islam Makashev and Bobby Green. Originally, Makashev was scheduled to take on Benyel Daryush. Daryush had to pull out because of an injury, and Bobby Green stepped in on short notice to face Islam Makashev, who many consider to be the future champion of the lightweight division. The protege of Khabib Nurmagomedov, he's really molding him in his own style. Makashev has great stand-up as well as a great takedown game, and he looks like a future champion, continuing his dominance against Bobby Green, landing 30 total strikes. Green only landed 11. Makashev had a minute and 57 seconds of ground control time, and he was able to get the win here by turning Bobby Green over to his stomach and landing ground and pound on his head as the fight was mercilessly stopped at 3 minutes and 23 seconds of round number one. Another dominating performance from Makashev, who is now calling out Benil Daryush, saying that's the next fight he wants because they were scheduled to fight, and hopefully they can make that fight happen. If Makashev gets past Daryush, expect the fight after that to be his title fight against either Charles Oliveira or Justin Gaethje. The winner of that fight should be taking on Islam Makashev for the lightweight title. Makashev, the Russian fighter, really doesn't seem to have any weaknesses and give a lot of credit to Bobby Green for taking on the scariest guy in his division on only a week notice after fighting previously. On the other week's card, he came in this fight, took the fight, did well. Um, Makashev ultimately was just too dominant in there, too good with his wrestling. And for Bobby Green, you've got to love the heart that he showed in there for even taking this fight. And for Makashev, he continues his upward trajectory and we'll see if he can perhaps take on Daryush in his next fight. Makashev now has a knockout win over Bobby Green, submission wins over Dan Hooker and Thiago Moises. So as the opponents get better, it seems that Makashev is able to rise to the occasion and show why he's the scariest lightweight in the world. Now let's move on to a fight preview of UFC 272 Covington vs. Masvidal. On March 5th, 
From the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada, the pay-per-view card starts at 7 p.m. Prelims on ESPN and ESPN Plus at 5 p.m. In the co-main event, we've got a catchweight fight at 160 pounds between Rafael Dos Anjos and Renato Moicano. Dos Anjos was originally scheduled to take on Rafael Fiziev in this fight. Fiziev had to pull out after contracting COVID. So this is the fight that they were able to come up with on short notice. It's a pretty decent matchup. Dos Anjos is 5'8", 160 pounds with a 70-inch reach. Moicano is 5'11", 160 pounds with a 72-inch reach. So he's got the height and the reach advantage on Dos Anjos. Dos Anjos should have the wrestling advantage in here and also, of course, the experience advantage being in there against the best of the best. Dos Anjos is the favorite at minus 180. Moicano, the underdog, at plus 155. I like Dos Anjos to win here by unanimous decision. I think that his wrestling acumen, also his powerful strikes, will be too much for Moicano to overcome, who's coming off a big submission victory over Alexander Hernandez in his last fight on February 12th. So a quick turnaround for Moicano, taking on a very tough opponent in Rafael Dos Anjos. Moicano is a decent fighter with wins over the likes of Alexander Hernandez, Jay Herbert, Damir Hedzovic, Cub Swanson, and Calvin Qatar. However, his losses have come to Brian Ortega by submission, Jose Aldo, and Chan Sung Jung, both by knockout, and also a knockout loss to Rafael Fiziev, the opponent that Dos Anjos was originally scheduled to fight. So this should be a very interesting matchup. Both of these guys have strong ground games, but I like uh, Anjos his, in terms of his strength, his wrestling ability, and also how he can put together strikes, either with kicking or punching. That could really overwhelm the taller Moicano. I expect Dos Anjos to get the win here by unanimous decision. It's a big fight between two really good Brazilian fighters that could go either way. I just like Dos Anjos here. Dos Anjos looked really good in his last fight when he got a big win over Paul Felder by split decision. It was a close fight, but uh, ultimately Dos Anjos, his wrestling combined with his striking and ground and pound was enough to get the win over Paul Felder. Previous to that, he had two unanimous decision losses to Michael Chiesa and Leon Edwards. Moving on to the main event at welterweight at 170 pounds between Colby Covington and Jorge Masvidal. Covington is the big favorite at minus 330. Masvidal, the underdog, at plus 260. They're both 5'11", 170 pounds. Covington with a 72-inch reach. Masvidal with a 74-inch reach. Masvidal is 37 years old. Covington is 34 years old. Masvidal has a record of 35-15. and 15. Covington a record of 16-3. and 3. Covington beat Rafael Dos Anjos by unanimous decision, also Robbie Lawler by unanimous decision, then got knocked out by Kamara Usman in his title fight in the fifth round, followed that up with a knockout win over Tyron Woodley, and now in his most recent fight, a unanimous decision loss to Kamara Usman in a close and competitive fight, but ultimately Usman was able to get the better of him in terms of the striking and the grappling, which is why Covington remains runner-up in that welterweight division. He's taking on his longtime friend turned enemy now in Jorge Masvidal, who's been through everyone really in his fight career. He has a record of 35 wins and 15 losses, and he's coming off a knockout loss to Kamara Usman in his last fight. Uh, previous to that, he lost to Usman by unanimous decision, 
and in his other three fights, he knocked out Darren Till and Ben Askren, and also he stopped Nate Diaz. So clearly, Masvidal always comes to fight. Both of these fighters have had their crack at Kamara Usman. Neither of them was able to defeat him, but definitely the more competitive fight was the one between Covington and Usman, not the one between Masvidal and Usman. In their first fight, Usman took down Masvidal again and again in a pretty boring unanimous decision win for him. In their next fight, Usman was able to knock out Masvidal with a picture-perfect straight right hand that really blew the sweat off Masvidal's face. It was really like seeing a knockout in a movie. It was that type of vicious knockout that Usman got on Masvidal. Now, coming off that knockout loss, we're going to see how he looks going in there against probably the second best guy in the division in Colby Covington. I'm expecting this to be largely a grappling match that Covington is able to beat Masvidal in. Masvidal, he should have some advantage in the striking and in the stand-up game, but if Covington is able to take down Masvidal over and over over the course of this fight, then it will go in his favor, and I'm expecting Covington to win by unanimous decision. I think his cardio, his ability to get takedowns and control the match on the ground combined with a pretty decent boxing acumen, will be enough to get the win here over Jorge Masvidal. Masvidal is definitely capable of landing that one-punch knockout on Covington. The problem is that Covington is very good at getting in and out of range and surviving and you know winning these tough fights like he did against Tyron Woodley and like he nearly did against Kamara Usman. This could turn out to be a pretty boring fight if Covington is able to just take down Masvidal again and again and control the fight that way. But if this fight stays standing, it could get very interesting and Masvidal could even knock out Covington. I don't see that happening, so I'm picking Covington here to get the win by unanimous decision. That will conclude episode number 33 of Combat Bets with Jason Barron on the Believe Network presented by BetOnline.ag. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the weekend and all the great fights. UFC 272, Covington vs. Masvidal. Also an amazing fight between Julio Cesar Martinez and Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez that absolutely cannot be missed. It's the fight I'm most looking forward to. And of course, also Jose Ramirez vs. Jose Pedraza in action as well. A lot of great fights to look forward to this month. Also, of course, in April and May with both Gennady Glovkin and, of course, Canelo Alvarez in action as well. So really looking forward to watching these fights. And enjoy your weekend, everybody. Remember, Kobe forever, Mamba forever, Hank Aaron forever, Muhammad Ali forever, Marvin Hagler forever, Diego Maradona forever. Thank you so much for listening to episode number 33 of Combat Bets. And have a great weekend. And remember, no more war. It's amazing that these Ukrainian fighters from the Klitschko brothers to Lomachenko, to Usyk, even Viktor Postol fighting a fight when his family was back home in the Ukraine shows me their incredible human spirit and their tenacity and will to, you know, fight for their homeland. It's really inspiring to me, and I hope we can take some of that into our own daily lives. So while we look forward to all these fights in the ring in the octagon, remember there's also a bigger fight going on in Ukraine and let's pray for peace and no more war. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. 
You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.